Welcome to Pod HD, the podcast that brings university research to an international audience. My name is Guy Kiddy. In this episode, we have a man who deals well with decomp. Those are his own words. Dr. Andy Chick researches the effects of common toxins on tissue decomposition and can relate maggot distribution and development to doses of nicotine. But first up in this season of the Six Nations Championship, I talked to Joe Hall of Leicester's De Montfort University about his work on the social history of rugby union. His research features multiple recordings of international stars from the post-war amateur days to the advent of professional play and beyond. So I'm Joe Hall. I am about three and a half years now into my PhD looking at the social history of English rugby union um, in uh, the post-war period. Um, up to 1995, so 50 years between 1945 and 95, based quite sort of heavily around oral history material that I've recorded. So I've recorded interviews with ex-players from that time. That's um, really that's and- really interesting because um, most history projects rely on, on 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 source material, certainly primary material that is recorded or written down. Because well, most history involves people who aren't alive anymore. Uh, and, and events that are too far back to have contemporary witnesses. So, so what's what's special about doing a, an oral history project? Um, when you're going back and reading kind of written material, you can't ask that material the things that you really want to know. You have to kind of hope that that stuff's in there. So one of the special things I think about oral history is that it gives you a chance to have a kind of level of control over the things that you find out. And of course, you're talking to somebody who was involved firsthand in the things that you're researching which is you know it adds that human element as well which I just think is really kind of rich and comes across um, certainly when you kind of quote from oral history in in written material I think it comes across quite well there and certainly in, obviously in the recorded material too. And, and how did you go about finding your interview subjects because they in order to, to produce an, a, a social history of of uh, of rugby in the post-war period for the 50-year period you describe, you need to have quite a diverse range of people who've been involved uh, or were involved in rugby during that period. So how did you go about finding your interview subjects? Well, my PhD is a, it's a collaborative doctoral award. Um, so I work with the World Rugby Museum at Twickenham um, and I have been speaking with them kind of throughout to select interviewees uh, and I'm lucky enough that they have kind of the uh, the contact details that I need of ex-England players. Because um, all the people I speak to, the main, the kind of number one criteria is that they must have played for England in that time. And so however many times they played, once or 50 times or whatever. So I've I've tried to pick from that kind of quite broad range of people um, a, a kind of selection that fills a few different criteria. So like I said, uh, the amount of times they've played for England, kind of their level of fame, a, a variety there, um, a variety of people throughout that period from 1945 to 95. So some going back right to, uh, I interviewed a guy who played in 1947, who's 91 now. Um, I interviewed somebody who played in 95 for the first time, who's in his early 40s. So a big mix of age range um, and a mixture as well of people's kind of social backgrounds so I've looked quite a lot at where people were educated and what types of school they went to whether they went to university or not um, so to try and get a broad range from that kind of social uh, history point of view as well. And, and what are the, some, some of the things that you've uncovered because I was I was reading the the pricey of your research before uh, uh, picking up the phone to talk to you 
Um, and, and one of the key points you mentioned, one of your key focuses, is that after the war, rugby union went through a bit of a, re- a revolution in tandem with the rest of society um, and, and broke free of the playing fields of Eton uh, and suddenly became a much more egalitarian and inclusive sport. So, so what were some of the things that drove that change, um, both in the sporting world but more generally in society? Well, it's an interesting watch one actually that because um, in in a lot of ways it did change a lot the sport in that time and like you say it did become a little bit more inclusive but actually in in many ways it it stays kind of quite static in terms of the social background that people come from. Um, it may seem sort of anecdotally on and on the surface a lot these days now that the sport is professional because the sport was amateur up to 1995 which is why I choose that as my cut-off point. Um, so after 95, uh, people start getting paid to play the game. And it may seem now that that's kind of opened the game up, but actually um, I, was, I was reading an article recently and saw a stat that in 2014, um, 61% of the players playing in rugby's premiership were privately educated. Um, so it's still, you know, and, and we're talking about from a population where sort of six or seven percent of people at large are privately educated. So, um, yeah, I, I've tried to kind of tell the story of both the change and the continuity. And I think that kind of second part is quite important. But um, really, I, in terms of what kind of drove change, the, the main driver of change in the game eventually was money, I think. Um, because as I say, it was an amateur sport for so long when, you know, most other major sports had turned professional long before, um, rugby eventually found it very hard to resist the fact that there was so much money potentially floating around through spectators, through sponsorships. And it it eventually became a bit of an anachronism that this game was still an amateur sport. And that eventually kind of uh, the floodgates eventually opened uh, in the early nineties. So I guess the the money aspect of things has meant that okay at the at the highest level the the game is accessible to people from feasibly from all social classes because they can earn a living from it but there's money there also that trickles down into associations and clubs and training and things for youth uh, involvement to encourage youth in- engagement and that is really what has um broadened the grassroots level of of rugby would that be a correct assumption yeah, I think I think so. Um, but it, but like I say, it's still it, rugby. The interesting thing again, if you compare it to other major sports, is how closely linked it is to education, and 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 always has been. So rugby has this very strong link with schooling, and unlike say something like football, you don't often hear people discussing what schools footballers went to, but you still hear that a lot in in rugby circles. You know where where did he go to school or, or whatever. Um, so I think that is where it all kind of stems from. Uh, and the RFU now are doing a lot of work in trying to get rugby into more state schools. Um, so they have a thing called the All Schools Programme. And I think more work is, is, is eventually started to be done in terms of spreading the sport at that level um, from its kind of very traditional base in private schools and in grammar schools. But it's, it's still, you know, that is still the hotbed of, of rugby union. Um, of those type of schools even now Um, and it shows something that the RFU is kind of having to do something very specific to try and balance that out really but I think that's where the social background of rugby all stems from it's from the kind of secondary school level and the schools that it's played in. 
Uh, you, yeah. you mentioned that you you've interviewed people of over a great range of ages. I think uh, you said that there was somebody who played international rugby for England in 1947 who's now 91. I wonder if across your range of interview subjects there were any comments or any anecdotes that you really thought were special or surprising. Yeah, loads. I mean, I, so I interviewed, uh, I've interviewed 30 people in total from across that kind of range. Um, there are a few kind of little comments that that stick in my mind. One in particular um, from a guy who played for England and for the British Lions in the 60s. Um, and he, this, this again links into, I, I'm kind of very interested in the, in the, the class background and the educational background of the game as I, it's probably clear from me going on about it in this podcast. Um, but he, I was talking to him about the, the kind of walks of life that people were from who he played with and, and who played for England. Um, and he was telling me all about uh, the kind of post-match dinners and things that they would do after games. Um, and he, he was sort of describing the evening and, and saying, and we'd go in and we'd have this to eat. And he's, we'd always have a gin and tonic, he said. And he said, I'd never drunk gin and tonic until I played rugby for England. <laughs> and that was just, I thought, a very sort of telling, uh, neat phrase that almost kind of sums up virtually my entire PhD in one kind of neat little um, neat little anecdote. So that That's one always a, sticks in my mind. It's quite quite surprising because you, you assume that gin and tonic and cricket go together and that whole yeah. Raj sporting scene, uh, British Raj in India sporting scene, for, for gin and tonic to be adopted by rugby, I don't, it just doesn't seem to fit really. For me, rugby is all about a pint of tetanies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's pl- plenty of stories of that as well. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that, that was a good one. And, and another one on a similar theme, I interviewed um, a guy called Ray French, who played both rugby union and rugby league. Um, he's probably more famous as, as a rugby league player, but played four times for England at rugby union uh, in 1961, I think it was. And uh, so he was he was from St. Helens, um, grew up in a kind of working class family in St. Helens, and only started playing rugby union because of going to... Um, uh, grammar school um, and then going on to play at university and he was talking about in those days they would have England trial matches to pick the England team so there would be a series of three games where um, certain players were picked and they would pick the team from that and he got invited to play in this England trial game and he said he went up and he was there on the Friday before the game and they would all have a kind of dinner the night before the game and he was saying you know he just he couldn't believe that he was sitting around with all these people who's about to have a trial match with enjoying this kind of three-course dinner and uh he said all of a sudden they brought out one of the meals and it was lobster <laughs> just the way again this is the sort of human element of the oral history you listen to the recording and the way he tells the story is brilliant and he said i'd never seen lobster before in my life so i, I kind of looking around and I'm, i don't know what to do with it <laughs> and I'm, I'm asking the guy next to me how you know who he knew like how, how am i supposed to eat this you know and it, just again a brilliant story and he said i, I couldn't believe we're doing something that's supposed to be this big, you know, serious thing. And the night before it, we're all having a few drinks and lobster for dinner <laughs> before we go out and play. And that, again, just sums up that kind of classic amateur ethos of the sport in that time. Yeah, and it's an ethos. Surprised that it endured that, that long in rugby because it's an ethos that you definitely hear about, for example, in the case of a Tour de France and how they would have their refreshment would be a carafe of, of wine halfway around, carafe and a few gulwars maybe yeah um but that it endured for such a long time i'm not sure how it is today i mean i'm i'm I presume, i'm presuming that before an international game you're not the english england team isn't sitting around having a 
lobster supper and a few few beers or a few glasses of something um maybe to celebrate afterwards <laughs> but in the, yeah, am- at the yeah. amateur level I, I can imagine that kind of thing still goes on yeah i mean that so that's one side of the sport that has definitely changed hugely is um the professionalism from the point of not i mean it has changed in terms of money now as well but professionalism from the point of view of the way that they prepared for the game and how seriously they took it uh, tactics, training, things like that. That's the thing you really see change over that period that I'm looking at. So by, you know, in the early 60s, in the, in the 40s, 50s, those types of things were going on regularly. Um, people, you know, the post-match dinners, pre-match dinners, all that type of stuff. By the kind of 80s and certainly the early 90s, things have become a lot more professional by then. So um, the, there's a lot more in terms of kind of training, um, lengthier kind of training camps, um, a lot more commitment asked for in terms of like players keeping up their personal fitness, um, more coaching, more kind of analysis of the game. In the past, in the 40s or 50s, they would they would get to London before a game on Friday. Um, it was actually written into the laws of international rugby that it was forbidden for a team to meet up more than 48 hours in advance of a match because that was seen to be too professional um so they'd meet and they'd have a they'd have a run around on the friday uh, a kind of nearby rugby club um which would be run not by a coach because they didn't have a coach until 1969 um by the captain or the selectors um and that would be it and then they'd go out and play the game and they would probably a lot of people wouldn't have met each other before um and they would then go out in front of 60,000 people at Twickenham and play for England. And now that seems absurd to us because they have, you know, sort of two, three week training camps in the run up to tournaments. They go through, you know, they're unbelievably fit now rugby players and they have every single minute detail of their fitness and their preparation looked after. And that, you know, couldn't be more different from what was happening um, in the kind of immediate post-war era. Absolutely. And, are you intending to publish some of these recordings you've made? Because, as you said at the start of this interview, the, the human element of an oral history such as yours is, is in many ways the really special element about it. So are you planning, in conjunction with the Rugby Museum at, at Twickenham, perhaps to put them in an online archive or something like that? Um, yes, we, well, th- there's no concrete plan at the moment, but it certainly is something we've talked about. Um, the, so the recordings will definitely be going into an archive at the museum so people will be able to access them for, for research purposes or whatever. Um, but yes, I think we, we would like to do something with them, uh, whether that's putting them online, potentially um, using them in the museum in some way. But that's, that's not something that there's concrete plans for yet. But I think probably something we will discuss in the future, yeah. Because, yeah, as you say, that's, it's one of the, the, the real benefits of it is hearing you know, people's voices, people's accents, people's kind of passion uh, uh, or sadness or, or whatever it is, the emotion in people's voices, yeah. Uh, and just finally, what's what's your plan for uh, after you've finished writing up? Are you going to turn this uh, PhD into a book and continue in, in, the re- in research, probably in the same uh, field, or what's, what's your plan? Yeah, I'm hoping to. I, I would love to publish it um, as a book. Again, no no concrete plans yet, but it's definitely something I'd like to do, I think, it would hopefully be something that would have kind of interest both in the academic world and just more generally for for sports fans, rugby fans, uh, uh, for anyone really. Um, 
in terms of plans post that, I am kind of keeping an eye out on on academic jobs and on research stuff, um, but also keeping an open mind um, just because of you know the situation with with academic jobs isn't isn't particularly encouraging at this um, at this stage. Um, but I would like to continue researching and writing in some guys, whether that be within an academic institution or or kind of writing outside of academia. Because um, I think there's a lot more to be said, not just about rugby, but about lots of other sports and where they fit into social history. He calls himself Dr. Necrophorus. It's time for Andy Chick and maggot-covered pigs. And I'd advise you to finish whatever you're eating before we begin with the definition of forensic entomology. Sort of what most people think forensic entomology is, is using insects to determine time of death. So um, normally when you sort of watch something like, say, CSI, the, the coroner comes in and sort of says, oh, they've been dead since about seven o'clock. The coroner can only really provide an accurate estimate of time of death for about 72 hours post-mortem. After that, they sort of run out of sort of the, the biological things they can check to determine um, time of death. Because sort of maggots will land, oh, sorry, flies will land uh, on a on a corpse almost straight after death if you know how old the maggots they've laid um, are you can work out roughly how long a corpse has been there for in layman's terms we sort of wanted to know do smokers decompose faster or slower than non-smokers or the same as non-smokers um, so that's why we sort of started injecting pigs with nicotine you place these these pigs in in, in woodlands and then observe the rate of decomposition, also observe where the insects, uh, the flies settled, where they laid their larvae and where the maggots therefore developed. Um, yes. and, and then, so what, what were the findings? Broadly speaking, obviously the, the main finding is that an intoxicated pig, a nicotine intoxicated pig doesn't rot as quickly or isn't eaten as quickly as a non-intoxicated pig. But what are the um, finer points? The, yeah, the, fi- the finer points are... Um, the pigs, they had, there was an initial delay in decomposition, um, but the actual development of the, the test blowflies we used, their development was changed in a very strange way that they went through the initial stages quite quickly, um, developed to sort of almost pupa relatively quickly, but they took longer as pupa, um, which is something we're sort of sorting out at the moment. Um, in terms of sort of actually what happened on the actual pigs, we found that things like uh, normally blowflies lay their eggs in clumps um, and it's an evolutionary thing because um, it prevents the eggs from drying out and a single female can lay hundreds of eggs in one go. So the idea is where they bundle them all together, the, the most of them um, have a better chance of actually hatching and developing uh, because they they employ, they employ a, an almost scattergun approach because they because sort of the the blowflies can't really um guarantee that sort of uh pigs or humans or anything that sort of size will be dropped on a regular basis they they have to outcompete everything else that's also trying to colonize so they lay hundreds and hundreds of eggs but they lay them in clumps so that they don't dry out and we found that with the nicotine um infused pigs that we were seeing more singularly singularly laid eggs which obviously didn't stand a particularly good chance of hatching. We also noticed that um, blowflies tend to 
well, they always sort of lay around natural orifices. So on a human, they'll lay around the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth. Um, or if you're naked, they'll lay around the genital and anal region. Um, the reason they do this is because I always liken it to a to a child. Um, when when a child's first born, they can't handle solid meals like an adult can. So we feed them milk, um, either as formula or breastfeeding. Maggots have a similar thing that their mouth parts aren't as able to um, handle the most of the body. Um, so they go for the softer area. So if you think of your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, there's all soft tissue on the inside, um, which is where the maggots are sort of laid. So again, it's this evolutionary idea of giving them the best chance. Now, as a result of your work, are you able to, or have you developed a a scheme whereby you can say, right, so larvae of this type of this age indicate that the uh, time of death was around this point? Uh, we have for one species, um, we have sort of a, an equation that we're, sort of writing up as a proper paper now um and we've got the methodology to expand it for other species um and it seems relatively robust obviously it's got to go through peer review to make sure that it's not just me thinking i've done my phd i'm awesome i've got the two letters you know i've now got the name doctor um <laughs> type thing um so it's gonna go through peer review um but I mean, we're quite happy with what we've managed to get from it. Um, so we've got this um, this equation that we've managed to develop so that you can correct for doses. Um, and so we, we sort of hope it will survive peer review. Um, but that's that's what my supervisors are nagging me about at the moment to write yeah. up so it can go through peer review. I guess one one problem you might have there, given the fact that nicotine breaks down so readily, is that apparent concentrations of nicotine in a corpse that's been lying around for a while um, are going to be a lot lower than they might have actually been when the person died. Yeah, um, we have we've been looking. There's there was a paper published recently that's done um, mass spectrometry on. Uh, maggots that have been infused with nicotine and the metabolites that they break down to um so hopefully putting their work together with ours you should be able to work backwards to the starting concentration if not at least it sort of shows that there's some level of inaccuracy in the actual normal calculations and i might be able to make a nice career out of postdocs (laughs) Um, Thanks again to both Joe Hall and Andy Chick, and thanks to you for listening. As ever, if you have any comments, queries or requests, don't hesitate to get in touch. The email address is podhd at pubhd.org.